Assalamualaikum everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host Umar Osman. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm sharing a recording of a talk that I delivered at the Texas Dawa con- uh, conference entitled The Involuntary Manslaughter of Islamic Scholarship. And this talk was based on a book that I read that was entitled The Death of Expertise. And I wanted to dive into this idea of people faking expertise or just the way that we treat uh, knowledge or people of knowledge, you know, a lot of subjects around that area. So please take a listen. If you've got any feedback, please share it. Please make sure you check out the show notes. I've got all the links for subscribing to the podcast and email list and all that good stuff. Uh, Please share that. I would appreciate that a lot if you shared it with your friends. With that, let's dive in. Quick piece of context because the beginning of the recording was cut off a little bit. The opening of it is talking about a survey that was done where, you know, these pollsters, they ask people, Democrats and Republicans, etc. Would you support bombing this particular country? And they named a particular country and people responded whether they would be in favor of bombing it or not. So we'll, we'll take it from there. We'll dive into the lecture. Once again, you know, subscribe to the podcast, all that good stuff. If you've got any feedback, please reach out and share it. And with that, let's get right into it. Said that they were in favor. A certain percentage were opposed. Some were undecided. A certain percentage of Democrats were in favor. Some were opposed and some were undecided. What I want to know is, can you guess which country it is that they were talking about? If you think it was a Cameroon, go ahead and shout out Cameroon. Okay, one person. If you think B, it was Philippines, go ahead and shout out Philippines. If you think it was C, Azerbaijan, shout out Azerbaijan. If you think it was Guyana, shout out Guyana. How many of you feel fairly confident that you have the right answer? Say yes. So it's a trick question, it's actually none of the above. The country in question was Agrabah, the home of these guys. And so more than half the people polled had a defined authoritative point of view on whether they were for or against bombing this fictional nation without realizing it was fictional. And so this trend, this kind of anti-intellectualism, This is something that we have started to observe more and more. We live in a time of alternative facts, where we simply believe what it is that we want to believe, and no one can tell us otherwise. We believe in a world where we can just say, you know what, I just don't like climate change, so I'm not going to believe in it. We will go against the expert medical advice of a physician because we found something else through a Google search. And so, no matter how much we try to stem this, it seems like it's growing more and more and more. And so the question that I have is, how has this anti-intellectualism affected our Muslim community? And I word this question very particularly. It's not if it will affect the Muslim community or how it may affect the Muslim community in the future. But it's how it already has affected us. What are some of the symptoms of it? What are some of the things that are causing it? 
and to understand that we need to understand some of our own biases toward knowledge and expertise. See, traditionally, disciplines and sciences that are more objective or complex in nature, say science or mathematics or physics or biology or chemistry, are seen as more noble, more worthy of intellectual investment, and closer to some type of objective truth that can be identified and arrived at. But other sciences, such as liberal arts, history, things of that nature, things that are arrived at by means of contemplation and observation, or in our context, revelation, are seen as things that, well, because they're not so objective and they're a little bit more wishy-washy and kind of touchy-feely, that they don't have that same status. They don't have that same intellectual rigor that we look for in these other disciplines. And it's further reinforced for a lot of people, especially people that have immigrated here from another country. They may come from places where, you know, unfair or fair, there's a stereotype that those who go into religious studies or Islamic sciences or learn the Quran are those people who aren't intellectually cut out for the more sophisticated stuff. They weren't good enough to become an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, and so therefore they have to go and they have to study Islamic studies. But what does the Quran say about this type of divide in, in the community? We're told that there's a very specific distinction between those of knowledge and those who do not have knowledge. That are those who know equal to those who do not know. Go ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. Go consult, go find out the answer. And in this ayah that I have displayed above, there's a very interesting delineation taking place, which is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has raised some people in certain fields over others so that they may be in service to one another. Part of having a functional society is having people who are experts in different fields and being able to rely on and trust their expertise. Let me give you an example. When you go out on the interstate and you're driving on a bridge, there's a level of trust that the architects and the engineers and the construction people have all put in the requisite work to know that it can support the weight and the traffic and all these different things without the bridge collapsing. Otherwise, we would create a public safety crisis. So there's a level of trust that we have in some of these different fields. But as simple as that is, it's not something that we readily accept. See, we live in a society now where every opinion is equally valued and every voice must be heard. And so I can stand up here and I can say, I'm Suhaib Webb. And who are you to tell me who I'm not? And who are you to tell me how I feel or what my identity is? And to top it off, if you open up that convention program, it says Suhaib Webb is speaking right now. There's my proof. You can't tell me otherwise, and I'm entitled to hold that opinion. But we conflate that. See, we confuse being entitled to an opinion with being entitled to my opinion being correct or even valid to be held in the first place. Those are completely different things. And so we feel that when we say things like, well, everyone has equal input. Everyone has an equal share. Everyone has an equal point of view. That's often made by people who actually feel inferior in their knowledge. Because we know the, not, the opinion of the expert is not like the expert of the layman. And when the ego refuses to accept that, 
It leads to arrogance. It leads to an unwillingness to understand and to submit to the expertise. And so we say, okay, well, that's something that an ignorant person might do, but I'm smart. When my car breaks down, I take it to a mechanic, and I go to the professional, and I let the professional handle it and fix it. But see, the thing is, is that my ego doesn't take a bruising because I don't know how to fix my car. I don't have any, invo any emotional investment in being known as someone that's an expert in fixing my car. And so for me to admit that, it doesn't do any harm to my person. But when it comes to Islam, I don't need anybody telling me how to interpret the Quran. I don't need anybody telling me what the rulings are. I don't need anybody telling me how to live my life. I don't need anyone to tell me how to be Muslim. Because we have an emotional investment in making it look like we understand everything. And so we don't want to hear what anybody else has to say about it. We don't want to admit that there might be an inequality of knowledge that we need to look at. The irony, of course, is that the word Muslim means someone that submits. The word Islam means one that the religion, the religion of submission, submitting to what Allah has revealed. And so when we look, even at the stories that we all know, the story of Shaitan, for example, he said, I'm not going to bow down to Adam because he's created from clay and I'm created from fire. His ego would not accept that he had to bow down and acknowledge somebody else. In spite of the knowledge that he had of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his ego made him reject that commandment. And not only did his ego make him reject that commandment, but he went from simply being wrong to being aggressively wrong. Because after he was wrong, he then went and said, I'm going to go and mislead as many people of mankind as I possibly can. And we often do the same thing, sometimes not realizing it. Where we go from being uninformed about something, forming an opinion, and then being aggressively wrong about it. You know, there's, there's an article that went viral earlier this year talking about how the television show Friends signified the downfall of Western civilization. And one of the points that they made was that the smart guy on the show, Ross, anytime he brought up any type of intellectual subject or tried to talk about something quote-unquote smart, that the other characters would make fun of him or try to make him be quiet. And those of you who've heard the Chris Rock bit, he does the same thing where he talks about how it's suddenly become macho to not know stuff. Math, I don't know that stuff. Science, I don't know that stuff. That's beneath me. And that's a, it's a humorous observation, but it speaks to the effect that our egos have on us. That when I can't comprehend something, my reaction is going to be to dismiss it. And so we end up doing the same thing sometimes with our deen. We might say things like, when we hear two scholars maybe talking about a fic issue, like the type of water that can be used to make wudu. We might not understand it, so we'll say things like, man, see, these scholars, they just don't get it. They are sitting here arguing about water and wudu. We got bigger problems to solve. We can't be wasting time talking about this stuff. Or we feel emboldened to speak on behalf of Allah. And we say things like, you know, I think Allah has bigger things to worry about than if I prayed dhuhr on time today because I had a meeting at work or an exam at school. And we say things like this because we, we feel empowered. My voice matters. My opinion matters. And so I'm able to say that. And one of the reasons that we do this is because we have a false sense of confidence. And that's enabled by our access to information. If I don't know something, I can go and research it. I can go and look it up. And I'll be at that same level of proficiency as somebody else. 
I can Google something for five minutes. I can figure it out. I'm smart. And so we start to not understand really the delineation between the expert and the layperson. Take the idea of Islamic mortgage, right, or a halal mortgage. In order to understand the complexities of what makes a mortgage contract halal, someone needs to have expertise in Islamic fiqh, in usul al-fiqh, in Islamic finance, in economics, in the federal laws and regulations governing the country and each individual state. But when you go to a dinner party, someone that Googled it for 10 or 15 minutes speaks with the same level of authority as someone who may have expertise in all five areas. There's a distinct difference. There's some type of a drop-off. There's a disconnect that's taking place. Think about hadith. How many people have used sunnah.com to look up a hadith before? Right? And what happens on sunnah.com is you go, you look it up, you type in a few words in English, you get the hadith, you see a grading at the bottom, this hadith is hasan or da'if or sahih or whatever. We might not know what it means, but we'll take it because we got the piece of evidence we're looking for. And then what do we do? We copy-paste it into our WhatsApp groups, we debate with each other in Facebook comments, and we go about our way. But what we haven't understood is we don't know what we don't know. And so when I go and I read that this hadith is sahih or authentic, do I know which scholar made that ruling? And do I know how other hadith scholars maybe perceive that one? And maybe, maybe the person who said it's authentic, other experts in his field say that his opinion can't be trusted because he's way too lenient. There's more and more and more complexities as you go down that rabbit hole. There's an entire science how the chain of narration is done, and who narrated from who, and who lived when, and who studied with who, and how, did they have manuscripts or rely on their memory, all these different nuances that require years and years and years of expertise to build up. It requires critical thinking. It requires depth of knowledge. But the thing that we do, the thing that we've done, is we treat knowledge as if it's like factoids. It's like a trivia game. You know, just these little like dinner party, you know, dinner party things like, oh, this random fic trivia question, or when did this happen, or why did that happen, or who can Google the hadith and find it kind of thing. And this acquisition of information, we just sit and start collecting. We're collecting and collecting and collecting, but we don't really understand it. But we use it and we debate with one another. But I might not know, hey, I found this one hadith, but I don't know what other evidences there are that talk about this subject. I don't know that if there's maybe other evidences that indicate something else. I don't know if one abrogates the other. I don't know if there, there's certain principles that the ummah has agreed upon that make my understanding incorrect. Right? There's levels and levels of levels of things that I don't know. And what's very interesting is that we find from the Prophet wasallam, he made dua for Ibn Abbas, Allahumma faqihu fiddin wa alimhu ta'wil. Oh Allah, give him understanding and comprehension of the religion and teach him its interpretation. See, it's not about the accumulation of knowledge. It's not about what we have access to. But it's, did you understand? Did you understand it properly? And were you able to implement it? But for us, many times, the acquisition, the gathering of those resources, or the ability to access those resources, has become the end game instead of the first step. And so we hear this and we say, okay, I get how someone that's not that smart might do all of this, but I'm educated. I went to college. I got a master's degree. I'm not dumb. And so I'm not going to fall into that trap. 
But the reality is, relative expertise is much more difficult to overcome than ignorance. Relative expertise is much more difficult to overcome than ignorance. And so you'll have someone who's maybe an expert in being a model or an actress, now speaking with scientific authority about how vaccines are bad and potentially creating a public safety crisis. You have someone who's a physician or an engineer or an accountant or a computer scientist or a programmer saying that I have the expertise to do construction project management of a multi-million dollar construction project. We have people who say I'm a professional. They've never had a single management report in their entire career. But they say, oh, I can set up the human resources processes for our masjid, right? I can set up the HR process for our nonprofit management. That relative expertise is a big trick. That because I'm successful in one arena, I should be successful in another. And our ego doesn't ever want to admit that we don't know something. We never want to admit that we don't know something, especially when we have access to so much information. So yeah, I don't know anything about accounting, but I'll become the treasurer of an organization that has a $10 million annual budget because, hey, I can go to Khan Academy and watch a few videos. I'll figure it out. I can go on lynda.com. I pay them $15 a month, right? I can figure it out. And so we have this attitude that there's not anything that I don't know or that I can't master. And we start to, not, we start to lose sight of what our shortcomings are. Because we treat, when someone tells us that we're wrong or that we don't understand something, we take it as a personal insult. We're not able anymore to delineate between maybe not having a particular skill set with it being some type of uh, personal derogatory remark. And that's a distinction that we have to face. But we kind of, we try to overcome it. We do the whole fake it till you make it. We want to fake our cultural and religious literacy because we want to be part of the community. You know, it's like everybody has an opinion about halal meat. People who've never studied fiqh don't know anything about fiqh, but everybody has an opinion about halal meat and zabiha meat, right? Because that's part of our quote-unquote religious literacy as being a Muslim as part of the community. We never want to be the person that doesn't look like they don't know what they're talking about. And so we then also feel compelled to comment on everything. We feel that we have to share our opinion, and this is enabled by social media. You know, I remember like a while back when there was an attempted coup in Turkey. It seemed all of a sudden overnight everybody was an expert on Turkish politics. And I log in and I'm reading all of these comments and I'm thinking, man, like did I miss the, you know, the class on Turkey? Like I don't know any of this stuff, but it seems all my friends have been studying Turkey full time for the last 10 years. But the thing is that everyone feels compelled to share their opinion whether they know it or not. Because they have to fake that they're involved and they, they feel pressure that because they have access to that information that they have to somehow be able to showcase something for it. There's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it goes like this. The dumber you are, the smarter you think you are. The dumber you are, the more confident you are that you're not actually dumb. And in Arabic, there's a phrase called Jal Murakkab. It's ignorance multiplied by ignorance multiplied by ignorance. So think about someone who's a professional, right? So pretend you got like a professional singer. When there's a professional singer and they're singing and they hit a bad note, they're able to recognize, I just hit a bad note. That's called metacognition. 
They're able to recognize when they mess up. They don't need someone else to point it out to them. When a professional basketball player shoots a free throw or a three-pointer, the moment it leaves their fingertips, they know whether it's going in or it's not going in. Why? Because they have repeated that action thousands and thousands and thousands of times. There's been deliberate practice and analysis and expertise built up over time. And so they, they're able to recognize, yes, I did something wrong here. But Jal Muraqqab is basically someone that lacks that metacognition. They lack the ability to even know that they don't know. And so it's like two people having a debate that should we increase the tariffs on the imports and exports from this country? And they start going back and forth. Well, I think we should. We need to take a hardline stance because this country's leader is like this. The other one says, no, we need to take a softline stance. We need to build better relations with this country. They're one of our allies in that region. And then you come in and say, hey, guys, you're talking about Agrabah, a country that doesn't even exist. You're arguing about tariffs over a fictional country. And they say, well, that's what they want you to think. They paid off Google to take them out of the database so you wouldn't know. How do you argue with someone where you can't even establish a common ground? How do you debate and discuss something with someone where there's just no fundamental ABCs of something? And this is why one of the greatest scholars in Islamic history, Imam al-Shafi'i, he said that when I debated an ignorant person, I lost. Because how am I going to showcase these arguments and this line of logic to someone that doesn't even understand the basics and they don't even know that they don't understand the basics because they lack that basic skill. And to top it off, every time we log on to the internet, this Dunning-Kruger effect gets reinforced. See, the internet serves us up every, anything that we want. And so we think that we're gaining education, we think that we're learning, but we're just being served up something. You know what's really interesting? When they looked at the people who believe that President Obama was not born in the United States, right? This whole birther argument. What they found was that a large percentage of people who believed it were not the dumb backwards people that you might stereotypically think of, but it was college-educated people, professionals, smart, educated, accomplished folks who believe this. Why? Because here's what happens. They go online, they read this article, they like it, they share it, they comment on it, and now the algorithms at Facebook and Google serve them up another article like it. And they read that one, they click on it, they like it, they get another one. And so now what happens is that a few weeks go by and this very intelligent, accomplished, educated professional sits down and says, with full conviction, I believe this. Why? Because I've researched it. I've looked into it. I've read 20 articles about it. And I've done my due diligence and so I can now say with full confidence that this is the case. This is how fake news works. This is what literally what that epidemic is. And to make matters worse, our educational institutions now do the same thing. We've put the student in the place of arbitrating the expert. We've put the student in the position of arbitrating the expert. And so now the student rates the professor. How good was this professor? How bad was that professor? How effective was the curriculum? How ineffective was the curriculum? If the student could make that distinction, they should have been teaching the class. But yet they're put in that role, 
And now we do the same thing Islamically. We say, well, okay, yeah, this Sheikh's lecture was awesome. That Sheikh's lecture was horrible. We, like, we talk about it as if we're talking about biryani at a halal restaurant. Like, this one gets three stars, right? Like, we put ourselves in that role. And this has very dangerous ramifications in our communities. A friend of mine who's an imam, the masjid that he used to work at, and you'll find out why it was used to, is they came to him and they said that we're going to restructure your contract. And we're going to lower your salary but we're going to incentivize you by, the be by basically the better khutbah that you give and we are going to judge your khutbah quality the more that we're going to pay you in bonus money. And so now here's the thing, this committee of people, community members, board members, whatever, that are going to now judge this person's quality of khutbah. If you were to ask them, what is the purpose of a khutbah as outlined either in the Quran or from the Sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam? they probably would not be able to answer. If you were to ask them, what are the fiqh requirements that make a khutbah valid, i.e., what is the criteria by which you can even attain a passing score and not ruin everyone's jummah, they would not be able to answer that question. If you were to ask them, what are the best practices of speech construction and rhetoric and public speaking and delivering a message and all these different things that go into it, they would not be able to answer that either. And yet, they feel compelled and qualified to say that we are going to judge your performance of that khutbah. And not only that, but we're going to do it on behalf of the community. This is something that's very bizarre. And what happens is, this is a little thing, but it has, again, wide ramifications. So now what happens is that the person who's an expert or a scholar looks at this and says, this is ridiculous, I'm not dealing with it, I'm getting out of here. And then the expert finds other experts who have had the same type of situation and they commiserate together and they say, yeah, we're done with all of this and now what happens is you have this group of scholars and experts commiserating together and now the trap for them is that the ego becomes unbridled. That we're so good and smart and knowledgeable and these people can't recognize it. And so we're going to go off and we're going to do our own thing. On the other side, you have this community who says... These scholars, they're all divas. They don't understand what professionalism is and they don't understand how things are done in society. We don't need them. And so they fall into the trap of now ruling themselves through ignorant narcissism. That we're going to do what feels good to us. And then you know what happens? There's a vacuum. There's a vacuum of spiritual leadership in a community. And then you know who fills it? A person that has no business being an imam or a scholar and has no business providing spiritual direction to anybody, let alone an entire community. But that vacuum gets filled and the blind have to lead the blind. And the more that the student puts himself or herself in the position of arbitrating the expert, the more that it reinforces the cycle of what everyone likes to complain about with this celebrity Islamic culture. Because what happens is that now because we have this breakdown in community, we no longer have this functioning community where everyone's trying to make it work. Everyone's going further and further, further to their extremes. Now the expert is forced to almost become like a dancing bear and pander to the whims of what the audience wants. Let's do what's entertaining. What's going to bring a crowd so we can promote the next thing? Right? And this cycle goes on and on and the chasm gets wider and wider and wider. And this distinction between the scholar and the community member, it disappears. It disappears. There's no relationship anymore. And what ends up happening is one of, you know, one of the bizarre outcomes is that 
because of this breakdown in relationship, because of this lack of understanding of one another, the community then turns the expert into a technician. Like, yes, we understand that you went and got a PhD, but come teach Alif Bata. Like, you got your PhD in calculus, but we need you to teach first grade math right now, right? No one would accept that. By the same token, we will say things like, okay, the scholar, the expert, listen, we need you to come, perform the nikah, speak at the akika, give a token five-minute thing at the graduation, don't keep it too long, and then pray the janazah. Everything else, I don't want to hear your opinion. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. Don't tell me I need to wake up for fajr. Don't tell me I need to stop selling liquor. Don't tell me what to do or what changes I need to make. Just go do your thing, go pray the janazah, conduct the nikah, and, and leave us alone. And that's the attitude that gets fostered when this breakdown happens. And so, the question arises, well, okay, how are we supposed to identify who these experts are if we're, you know, supposedly so clueless? And one of the things is that there's, there's obvious things like credentials, there's intentional work experience. There's, you know, deliberate practice over time serving in a certain field. There's a recognition from other experts within a field testifying to someone's knowledge. You know, similar to when someone defends their PhD thesis, it's not with amateurs. It's with other people who are at similar level of accomplishment. There's a peer review. Islamically, there's a number of things that scholars have pointed out. There's fluency in the Arabic language. And yet we have people who complete you know, six months of Arabic studies saying that I'm here to be your imam, right? It, it just doesn't add up. They have to know what are the issues of consensus among scholars? What are the principles of usul and deriving rulings? What are the evidences that are abrogated or what abrogates the other? What's authentic and inauthentic? What are all these different issues? And ultimately, you not, you're not going to be able to identify all of it but at some level, you find people whose knowledge and character both that you trust. And as you study and as you learn, and as that baseline force increases, the more that we're able to spot others who have that level of expertise. Because as game recognized game, you have to have a little bit of it at least to recognize it in somebody else. And so it's a process. You keep learning, you keep identifying, you keep learning, you keep identifying. But one thing that we leave out in this sometimes is just that aspect of tawakkul itself. That have some trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when we do things for the right reason, that He will guide us to the right way. And one of the very interesting things that we find from the example of the Prophet sallallahu was that he would actually make dua to be guided to the truth in areas where people differ. Now someone else might say, well, okay, that makes sense, but brother, sometimes these guys, they're wrong. Like, they're just wrong. You know, what do we do about that? And everyone's got that one story that went viral one time where, like, a person was mis misdiagnosed and then they went on Reddit or WebMD and they correctly diagnosed themselves and saved their own life. And the reason that that story goes viral is because it is the exception. It's because it was one incident on a day where millions of other medical decisions were made correctly. It's not the norm. And to use that one exception to establish some kind of rule that experts are always wrong or experts don't know what they're talking about, it really is the height of ignorance. And one thing that we find Islamically is that there's more emphasis on the process as opposed to the outcome. See, when we're outcome-focused, 
we have this desire to be like this Herculean hero in this David versus Goliath tale where the know-nothing nobody topples the know-it-all expert and wins the day. You know, there's that egotistical desire to be that person. But what we find Islamically, the Prophet said that when the judge gives a ruling and they're correct, they get two rewards. And if they're incorrect, they get one reward. Meaning that even when the answer is wrong, they get rewarded. Because the emphasis is on the process by which the answer was arrived at. Was it the right person? Was it a qualified person? Did they assess the evidences properly? Did they make their best effort to do it? And if they did so, and the answer was still wrong, so be it. But at least the process was followed properly. We know the famous story when the Prophet ﷺ told the companions, pray Asr when you reach Banu Qurayza. And as they embarked on the journey, Asr time was about to expire, Maghrib was about to start, and they hadn't reached the destination yet. And so the companions differed. Some said, look, what he meant was hurry up and get there as fast as you can. We've been hurrying, but it doesn't mean that you let Asr time expire without praying, so we've got to stop and pray. And the other camp said, no. When he said, don't pray Asr until you reach Banu Qurayza, it literally means, do not pray Asr until you reach Banu Qurayza, so that's what we're going to do. And so some companions waited and prayed. Some companions prayed immediately and then went on the journey. When they got to the Prophet ﷺ, he said that both were essentially right. The process was okay and neither side is to blame. No one did anything wrong. Even though, from a scientific point of view, you have two contradictory answers. They can't both be correct, but in this case they are. In this case they are. Because we value having the right process over what the eventual end answer is. Now one thing that happens, and I, and I realize this as well, is it starts to feel kind of overwhelming. It's like, okay, well there's like a lot going on here. How are we possibly going to like figure all this out? And that's one of the traps. See, the more complex something is, so like government, government is a very complicated and complex institution. For many of us, our local communities may be the same way. And so we feel like, okay, this is way too much to handle. I'm going to leave the politics stuff to somebody else. And as long as I can watch football and eat chicken wings every Sunday, I, just, I don't really care. I don't really care. As long as they have a Jummah prayer going on, I'm going to show up and I'm going to pray and, you know, so be it. Let everybody else deal with everything else. I can't keep up with all the stuff that's going on. And to fill that intellectual void because now they're disconnected from the community, what happens? They take up other pursuits. I'm going to join seven different fantasy football leagues this year and put my intellectual prowess to work, right? And we've, we fill our time with those types of things instead. And this is really the challenge is that when that overwhelm moves us to inaction and it moves us to apathy and not caring. And so what happens is you have, you end up having uninformed citizens electing uninformed leaders. And then that cycle continues and continues to perpetuate. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? One is that we need to go back and find ways of cultivating trust between scholars and community members. Because that, that breakdown has occurred. And one of the ways that this happens is by people taking an initiative to trying to bridge that gap. See, my full-time vocation may always be whatever my profession is. I'm never going to become full-time in the line of Islamic work or becoming a scholar or any of those things. But I can reach a certain level where I can bridge the gap, 
where I can be relatable to the community member and I can also speak intelligently with the scholar and, and be someone that's a unifying force that pulls people together. That's something that's within my grasp. And that's something that people start to have to take an initiative to do. We need people who are experts and scholars to revisit and reapply that mentality of being a community servant. And, not, and although it's frustrating, but to not run away out of frustration. But to revisit that idea of service. But most of all, for that cultivation of trust, we have to revisit how we build our local communities. We, I mean, we literally have to get off the internet. You cannot build a community through WhatsApp or Facebook. Like, WhatsApp is the worst way to make a community decision. Because what happens online is there's no presumption of goodwill. There's no niceties. There's no empathizing. There's no looking and studying someone's body language. There's none of those things. It's just an aggressive race to see who's going to be the first to prove somebody else wrong and then get a nice gif to celebrate with it, right? And so we just go down that road. And we lose patience. We have more courage behind our keyboard than we do in person. And so all these breakdowns further and further occur. We have to revisit ways of making our community something that we, we revisit and that we start to build those bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood. We have to make our communities more professional as well. It's time to take the next step. See, when, you know, when this issue comes up of how we solve our community's problems and the mushrooms and all, you know, all, this, all these things that we all talk about all the time, Inevitably, someone will always say, well, we need these professionals to take the mushid as seriously as they take their work. And I disagree completely. Because it hasn't worked for the last 25 years. How long are we going to keep making that claim with, without anything changing? We need people to step into the fields and attain expertise in activism, in community building, in nonprofit management, in all these different you know, fields of expertise that we need for our communities to grow. And we need these people to be focused on that effort full-time. So some people are going to have to make the sacrifice of stepping into those roles, and others of us are going to have to make the sacrifice of supporting them and enabling them and empowering them. Because until we do that, we're always going to have our community as a hobby and our Islamic knowledge as a hobby and our spiritual development for ourselves and our children as a hobby or a side project. Until there's proper full-time focus on those issues, it's never going to change. You know, throughout many of the talks today, there's been a slight undercurrent of what I've noticed is basically cultivating the appropriate culture. Cultivating the appropriate culture for your kids to feel free to speak to you. Cultivating the appropriate culture of how to teach and talk to your family. All, all these different types of things. We have to cultivate that culture of learning as well within our communities. We have to understand the amana of knowledge. We have to understand the amana of knowledge. See, if you take a community, everyone's got, for example, a zakat policy or a moonsighting policy. How did they arrive at those decisions? One board member read a fatwa saying that you can use zakat funds for the mushid funds. And so they just start doing it. And I'm not here to say that that's right or wrong. That's, an answer. that's for someone else to answer. But what I want to talk about is how did they arrive at that conclusion? Did they research it? Did they talk to any scholars? Or did they just read one thing and run with it? Do they even know what they don't know in this situation? What about moonsighting? How many people make a decision on behalf of the community that this is how we're going to determine when we celebrate Ramadan and when we celebrate Eid? And 
They make a decision based on their own ease and convenience, and they haven't understood what are even the different arguments. Did you read one side? Did you read the other side? Did you consult scholars on both sides of the issue? Did you even ask them what it is? And to top it off, some of them will say, well, look, this is not a religious decision. We're going to put in the Mushroom Constitution that this is administrative and logistical. And so in this case, they've become that person that doesn't even know what they don't know. They don't even know enough to realize it's a religious decision. It's the equivalent of telling someone, look, global warming is bad, it's going to wreck the planet. And they say, well, it's okay because parts of Canada will feel warmer now in the wintertime. We have to adopt the mentality of a lifelong student. This is perhaps the most important thing that each and every individual can do, is to adopt the mentality of a lifelong student. That means going and just sitting in a class on a weekly basis, not an annual basis, like Alhamdulillah, we're here at the convention, but much more than this. We have to sacrifice a lot more. Go and attend a class every week. Go and sit in a masjid, listen to a teacher, take notes. Find ways to continually learn every single day. Because when a person has a mentality that I am a lifelong student, and, you know, and we hear when scholars speak, they always say, oh, I'm just a student of knowledge. I'm a student of knowledge. I'm a student of knowledge. And it's not out of fake humility or false modesty. They say that because there's an understanding that the moment I stop recognizing myself as a student, I'm going to become full of my own ego. And I'm going to think that I know everything and I've got everything figured out. And so I have to have that mentality of being a lifelong student. And when I do that, I give myself freedom to be wrong. I give myself freedom to be wrong. I give myself the freedom to learn and to correct myself. I start to develop humility within myself. And more importantly, the more that I learn, again, we always ignore the tawakkul aspect of it. But the more that I learn, the more blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in my life as well. But the toughest challenge with this, the toughest challenge is apathy. It's just people not caring. Like, yeah, this is nice. I just don't care about that stuff. I don't want to worry about that stuff. So how do you make people care? Like, that's a very complicated metaphysical question. Like, how do you get someone to actually care about something? How do you get them to want to do something about something meaningful? And there's no easy answer. And there's no easy answer to any of these problems that we've gone over. But the little that we can do is as we become lifelong learners, lifelong students, is that what we learn manifests itself in action with the community. That the more I learn, the more people see that I have increased in my care about them. The more I learn, the more people around me say, wow, this person really cares about me as a person. And then when that happens, they'll become interested and say, well, okay, I need to go and learn what that person's learning. And collectively, we start to increase that baseline level of knowledge. But it's something that's difficult. It's something that's a process. And it's something that's going to take a long time. But all of us have that ability to start and to embark on that journey and adopt that mentality of a student and embark on that journey of lifelong learning and inshallah start to turn the tides back the other way. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.